Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm glad you are here. Now, in case you missed it, at the end of last week's episode, we're going to start moving away from the discussion episodes and doubling up on the interview episodes. So now you're going to be hearing from two leaders each week. And I'm really excited about this particular interview because the leader that we're going to be hearing from today has led in all sorts of capacities, but he's also just written a book that is an extremely helpful resource to leaders. And it's a type of book that I can really get on board with because I don't know if you're like me, but I have books in my life that I have read over the years and continue revisiting. Usually they are books of compilations of poetry or quotes or different things like that. Things that you can pick up and read for a little while, put back down and revisit later. And this book is just like that in the sense that it's a book written for leaders, but it's a book that's written in pretty short chapters, four to seven pages. So if you ever have a particular leadership issue that you need to address or you need some insight on, you can go to this book, pick it up, look for your answer, put it back down and revisit it the next time you need some insight. Now, if this sounds like it would be a helpful resource for you, then I think you're really going to enjoy today's interview, and I would encourage you to consider buying a copy for yourself. Today's guest has led for decades in education, healthcare, and community development. He is an entrepreneur, a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and he co-owns a minor league baseball team in Pensacola, Florida. His newest book just came out at the beginning of October, and it's called The Busy Leader's Handbook, How to Lead People in Places That Thrive. Here is Quint Studer. Quint, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be with you. To help us get to know you as a leader before getting into our discussion topic for the day, I have a few questions for you. So you ready for this? Yep, sure am. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Um, I think two things, and these might be a little different than most people here. I, I think it's ego deflation. I think one of the things that happened to me is some failure. And I think failure really has a, can have a negative impact on people. But for me, it had sort of short-term negative, but long-term positive. And the fact that I think if a leader lets their ego get the better of them, it's going to end up being deflated. And what I've learned in life, it's a lot better to deflate your own ego than to have it deflated for you. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Authentic outcome-oriented, and the developer of people. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Do they understand change, and do the people they lead understand change? Um, I spent some time on the curriculum committee of the Harvard Business School, and we were looking at what are the skills that are most vital to a leader. The number one skill we came up with was change. That when I go out and travel the country and writing my book, Busy Leader Handbook, I would ask leaders, 
how many courses have you had on change, how many books have you had on change, um, and they ran, most of the time it was no. And then they also say that employees are going through so much change. So I'd say, well, have you done much training to help the employees understand change? Because if we get a new phone system, we talk to people. If we get a new software tool, we talk to people. If we have a new product or a price change, we talk to people on what it's like. You know, we spend very few minutes and t- hours explaining to people what they're going to go through a change. So I think if there's a weakness with most businesses is the leaders don't truly understand change, nor do they then help the staff understand change. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Well, of course, I like my book, The Busy Leader Handbook, but I thought E-Myth Revisited is one of the best books I ever read. I mean, we do roundtables here, and one of the people in the roundtable said, um, why don't we all read a book? And I think they're gonna, she's going to mention my book, and she mentions E-Myth Revisited, and I'm a little upset. Well, what about my books? And then I read E-Myth Revisited, and I actually recommend it. And it basically says people tend to work in their business they don't spend enough time working on their business. And I think it's a book that's a life changer for many leaders, particularly those that are in small businesses. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Um, I think the first thing they should do is ask every employee, do you have what you need to do your job today? Not how are you, what's up? Those are all important, but that crystal clear question is, do you have what you need to do your job today? And then you can say, is the staff here you need? Do you have the tools and equipment to do your job? Do you understand um, what you need to do? You can always take that question and go on with it. But the question I like to ask people is, do you have what you need to do your job? Because if you do it, most of the times they do. But when you hear about it is when they don't. And then they start thinking they never have it. I think about 94% of the time the person's going to say, yes, I do. So then they even realize when they don't have it. It's not the rule, it's the exception. So do you have what you need to do your job today? And there's probably one other one, if you ran meetings, ask the people to rate the meeting on a one through 10 for every single meeting. Because one of the biggest complaints I get from people is they sit in too many poor meetings, but then they don't speak up. By forcing people to rate the meeting they're in, you basically get a pretty good idea and you end up improving your meetings. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I think they, they're both fit. I, I read this, and I, I think, Josh, there's pretty much the one leads to the other because it all comes down to values. And if you really believe in what you're doing and you know why you're doing it, your values will almost say that you can't do it. So you get into a why not. Well, if you believe that your product is great, or what you do is important, which if you're listening to this podcast, you actually do. So I, I like the fact that if you connect to the why, then the values kick in. And if the values kick in, you almost cannot not do it, even if it's uncomfortable. Because that's really, hmm. you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, um, you know, people like to be comfortable, but it's only by creating discomfort is there any real hope. And as a leader, sometimes we get caught up in getting to think that everything's about making things comfortable. Sometimes as a leader, you got to be comfortable with discomfort. Well, thanks for those answers. Now, we are here to talk about your book, The Busy Leader's Handbook. And this is your, your 10th book, is that correct? Yes, it is. So what led to this book? You, you, have, you have a number of other titles. You've had a lot of success as an author in the past. Why come out with The Busy Leader's Handbook now? 
because, you know, my book, I, I really looked at when I travel and I talk to people, the toughest job, I think, is being a middle manager. You're sort of in that squeeze zone. And the middle, whoever has the best middle managers wins. Now, I think my book is good for anyone in leadership, anyone that aspires to be a leader. But I really think the, the spot I was thinking about is that middle manager or that principal of a school district. Yeah, they get some training. But then they have those times when, what do I do with this situation? So I tried to really provide them with, if you do these things, and you're, even though there's 41, don't get overwhelmed by that. But if you do these things, like this chapter, I may be having a tough conversation. You're going to have more consistency in your operation, and it's going to be more sustainable. But also, I want to reduce anxiety. Because being a manager, there's a lot of anxiety. How do I communicate this? You know, how do I make this tough decision? How do I um, handle this setback? It's going to be bad news. So the book was really written to reduce manager anxiety and for them and for them, for the, the company. It was there to help their managers be strong so they have more consistency and create a much more high-performing, sustainable operation. And if someone hears the title, they, they may hear Busy Leader and think this might be a time-saving book or something like that. But really, the, the value lies in the fact that it is a handbook. And you talk about this at the beginning of your book, that it is really something that you could read all the way through, but it's also built so that you can refer to it when you are in a time of need, right? Yeah. And though ironically, I never thought of that, Josh, but it is a time management tool in some crazy way. Oh, absolutely. Because if you get more effective and more efficient in what you're doing, you save a lot of time. So I agree with you. you know, the first one's about key skills you're going to need. Then we're going to talk about how do you optimize those that you lead. And of course, the last thing is how do you make sure you address the, the strategic or foundational principles of your job? So I'm thrilled to hit number five on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list already. So I'm very excited about this book. Uh, you know, we're always excited about whatever book you write. You put a lot of time into it. But whenever I write a book, I think, who's never going to hear me speak? You know, but who I want a book that makes their life better because my whole goal is to improve the quality of life for people. You've just talked about these three sections, the, the key skills and behaviors, optimizing employee performance, and then just these, these foundational topics. Out of all of these different principles that you bring up, are there any that are particularly meaningful to you personally? Yeah, um, and I started with it. Number one, strive to be self-aware and coachable. Um, I think for myself, it wasn't until I was about 31 years old that I became self-aware and, and now, if you would have asked me, was I self-aware, I would have said yes, because I was unconsciously incompetent in self-awareness. And I, I think what happens is, if you're self-aware, now self-aware means you've got to be willing to take some feedback. Sometimes you have to create tools to create feedback, whether they're anonymous surveys, employee engagement surveys, customer satisfaction surveys, um, ask tough questions, the feedback I got was that sort of when I'm meeting with people, when I sort of think the conversation is over, I sort of just end it. And I had to put into my thing, my, my supervisory sessions. Gee, is there anything you'd like to discuss before we end this? Because I was too abrupt with the ending. I lack self-awareness. When I talk to um, venture capital firms, one of the questions I ask them is, before you, what do you look for when you invest in a company? And I thought they'd mentioned, can you raise prices? Do you have a big runway? The number one, two things they said were we look at how self-aware is the person and are they coachable? And I think once you become self-aware, 
then hopefully, and I think most people are, you become coachable. So that's the chapter. I think if you get chapter one right, the rest of the book and the rest of your life is going to go much better. Something you said a few minutes ago was that it all comes down to values. Could you speak a little bit more about that and what that's meant for your own success in your career? Yeah. Um, and I know it's pretty interesting, too, because I read a book years ago called Built to Last it's by James Collins. It's actually my favorite book by him. And when he studied companies, he found that every, there were, every long-term successful company had moments in their, their company where they had to choose between values and revenue. And those that picked revenue didn't make it long-term. Those that picked values, that did. Hmm. So what I find is, so for example, if you know that employee retention or employee engagement is important to you, and then you have a, a, a tactic that if you do this tactic, um, it's going to help you with employee retention. Values don't allow you not to do it. If you care about the environment and you see something on, on the ground, you'll, you'll pick it up. Sure, you'll wash your hands and everything afterwards, but you just won't walk by it because your values will not allow you to do that. So I just think once you lock into your values, you're willing to go through the discomfort. So here's... A, I've done a lot of training, and the hardest thing for a manager to do is to fire someone. It's the hardest thing they have to do. When I talk to large groups, I'll say, how many of you ever fired someone? Of course, a lot of hands go up, and I said, did you think you probably rushed it a little bit, went too fast? And they laugh because they don't. We, we wait so long, and maybe for all good reasons, but a lot of times we hold on to low performers too long because it's uncomfortable we get attached to them. So I asked them two questions. I asked them to rank their values on a one through 10. And nobody ranks their values, at least in the pro training programs, less than an eight. And then I'll say, so now evaluate your skill in dealing with performance issues. You know, a 10 is, yeah, we have them, but we have a conversation. We put them on a, a work plan. We give them assistance to make it. We give them timelines. But if they can't hit the timeline and they can't make it, we remove them from the job or the organization. That's a 10. One is now that we have these people, we've actually now have had hired more people to work with these people. We have departments of low performers. That's a one. The average score is a five. Then I say, move your value score an eight back to a five. Because if you're not addressing these employees that aren't performing well, you're not living the values for the organization because you're being unfair to their coworkers that have to work with them. Once I get a person values, it's now a value discussion, not a performance management discussion. They will have these tough conversations. So once you lock somebody into values, they cannot not do something because if it's, they know it's the right thing to do. So I think values and locking into values are the key. That's some extremely valuable insight. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that will be something that people moving forward can put into practice uh, in their own evaluation of, of what they value and how, how their values align with their actions. So that's, that's an extremely valuable tool. Now, one, one thing that I had a difficulty with when I was trying to write your bio is that you have done so many things throughout your life. You've, you've been in the education world, the healthcare space. You are now working significantly in community development. How did you get into leadership in the first place? Because that seems to be one key common thread throughout all that you've done. What was it that attracted you to leadership or did you just find yourself in it all of a sudden and have to figure it out? Well, 
you know, that's difficult. I think like most of us, we, we get into leadership even though we want to do. I didn't get like an MBA or any of that stuff. I, I, about 85 to 90 percent of people that end up in leadership end up in leadership because their boss quit. And all of a sudden their boss quit and somebody needed to find someone and they say, we, would you be a manager? And of course, we don't know if we want to. And then they say, we have these trick words to talk people into doing something they don't want to do. We say, well, why don't you just do it on an interim? Not, not realizing an interim can last forever and there's no training. So I think, yeah, I think most people have a DNA to lead. But, um, you know, I was a teacher, a special ed teacher. And I think that the, the core thing that you look at everything I've done is they have three things in common. Being a special ed teacher, um, working in healthcare, and then trying to help communities improve their quality of life has great purpose, is worthwhile, and makes a difference. But I think every job does that. And I think as a leader, our job is to get every employee to understand what they do has purposes worthwhile and make a difference. And then I got promoted into a supervisory role. And I got to tell you, I was scared to death because, you know, I didn't have, I just didn't think I could do it, but I didn't want anyone to know it. So I got lucky. I, our local library had a film series. And they were showing a film called In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. And I went and listened to it. And what helped me is realize that I, it, not that it's going to be easy, but Tom Peters made it so I can understand it. And I gave me some tactics that I could do. And that's what I've tried to do with my books. I've tried to take complexity and put it into steps that someone can do to give them hope. One of the best times I ever had years ago when I was speaking in healthcare, two-day conference I did, a person came up to me and I was, you know, they were 62, which, and I was probably 50 at the time, but she was a lady and she came up to me at the end of two days and she said, I'm 62, I'm a widow. I've got to work at least for three more years. And I want to tell you, I'm a nurse manager and I didn't think I could do it. But I can leave here today and you've given me the tools to know that I can leave, I can make it through these, these three years. So I, I think it's that wanting to make a difference. And I think when you want to make a difference, the great thing about being in leadership is you can make a difference. And so if you have 50 employees, that's the number of employees. Yesterday I spoke in Statesboro, Georgia, and uh, the president of the university there, Georgia Southern, is Kyle Marrero. I've known Kyle for years. And Kyle just went from a university of about 13,000 students to a university of 25,000 students. Mm. And the reason he did it is because he believes he can have a bigger impact now because he's got 25,000 students. So I think it's just a real internal desire, you know, just like when I was a special ed teacher, to help people have better lives. Now you do a lot to invest in your community, and I'd love to hear how you came about to that as a primary focus of what you're doing. Um, what happened was I was traveling a lot in healthcare, and Jim Clifton at Gallup called me up because he wanted to talk healthcare because he's the chairman of Gallup, and they were noticing hospitals that my company worked with, um, the hospitals performed well, and he was curious. You know, Gallup's looking for solutions, and um, when I was talking to him, he just said they had just done the biggest study ever in economic development. And it was called Soul of the City. And ironically, it didn't talk about shovel-ready land or incentives. It talked about, you know, how do you make, how, what communities do to thrive? And he talked about, you know, that one of the things, if you want to keep young people, the key is who, have, who keeps their talent. Whoever keeps their talent wins. 
And small and mid-market cities usually don't. So how do you reverse migration? And one, one of the things, you know, he mentioned some tools and techniques. And then when I would travel to other cities, I would notice which ones are thriving and which ones aren't. So I studied it. So then we started doing some of those tools and techniques here in Pensacola, you know, making sure that our small businesses have a lot of skill training. Because most small businesses that don't make it, it's not because they don't have passion or even a good product. It's because they don't know how to run the company as well as they need. So we put that in place. And then we started doing what Tim Clifton said. We started creating this vibrant downtown, which meant programming the downtown with a lot of activity which then attracts these small businesses we can train, which then gets people wanting to work downtown, which leads to office space, which then helps people want to live downtown. So I got a call from my publicist, Dottie DeHart, DeHart Company, who's helped me with all my books. And she said, you should write another book. And I said, I thought it was leadership. I thought she was talking about what became the Busy Leader Handbook. And she said, no, I think mm-hmm. it's really fascinating how, how you have done this in the community. And, you know, they say capital follows talent and follows talent, talent follows place. So just like we have to create a great place at work to keep talent, we have to create a great community to keep talent in the community. So I started working in the community, and we did well. And you know, we won all sorts of awards, but we have a lot of great metrics. Our assessed property value has gone up 34%, outside investment 67% which led to other small and mid-sized cities saying, oh, how did you do it? And just like when I was president of Baptist Hospital, you know, we did well and hospitals started showing up. Cities started showing up. So we just sort of got into, um, you know, helping communities create better places. And because I think it's all local today. And I think people aren't looking for national or even statewide for answers. Um, It's all local. And what's neat about local you can get a group of people in the room and we can disagree on so many national political things, but we can all agree we want safety. We want our kids to have a good education and we want our families to have good opportunity and have, you know, we're looking for affordability, opportunity and vibrancy. So that's, you know, sometimes I just get into things that was some strategic plan. Um, I just, I, I have a quote that says, if you see a problem, you have a human responsibility to try to come up with a solution. So when I've seen problems, I've always tried to like diagnose them first. I learned that as a special ed teacher. Then get everybody in the room and give them the diagnosis and then try to come up with a a treatment plan, um, some steps we can take to make the situation better. So how does your co-ownership of the Blue Wahoos and then some of these other businesses, I know you have a number of, of businesses that are branded as bodacious. How do all of these work into that community development piece or are those just separate things that, that seem to be working together well? No, in fact, the mission statement of all of them is to improve the quality of life. So when we looked at something like, let's say, baseball, we have a double A team that I own you know, with Bubba Watts and, and some other people, um, I own, I'm the, own the majority of it though, is it does two things. Number one, it creates a sense of neighborhood. People are desperate for neighborhoods today. The front porches don't exist. You know, they're living in cul-de-sacs. They're, they're missing that front porch mentality. So I think it really creates a sense of neighborhood when you get 300,000 people spending time together. And of course, now we do football there and we do all sorts of activities. It was also something to get people downtown. It was part of that programming that we heard about. And then um, Ray Gindros from Urban Design in Pittsburgh, when we brought him in, he said to have a vibrant community, you need to have a great intersection. Hmm. 
so the Bogesia shops were basically taking old buildings at this intersection and creating shops, you know, olive oil store and kitchen stores and coffee shops. And then all of a sudden it kicked off and other people, once you get some going, the foot traffic starts happening. So then more foot traffic starts. So then all of a sudden Halifax started filling up with people getting exciting because it's being programmed. Like today, we have three blocks of things hanging down from on wires, and it's a fire and rain festival here for two weeks. It's called Fufu Fest, and thousands of people will be here. Then that, the, the small entrepreneurs start making it because they got foot traffic. And then all of a sudden, people want to work downtown, but they want to need office space. So then office space got built, and then all of a sudden, people want to live downtown, and we just put up 258 apartments. When I say we, it's the community, and um, they're, they're full. And so I think it's a process. It's a blueprint you can follow. And um, so that's, so when I got involved, you know, you can't ask other people to invest if you're not investing yourself. And I tell communities that all the time. We need outside investors. I said, you won't find outside investors if you don't, can't find your inside investors. So, you know, there's people like me that are lucky enough to have some wealth instead of leaving it in a money market somewhere. I call it hybrid investment, Josh. You're not going to make what you can make maybe in a money market. But you're not going to lose money, but maybe instead of 8%, you're going to make 2%. But if you can make 2 or 3% and make it a better community, hey, that's a heck of a thing to do. So I call it hybrid investment in a community. It's getting your wealth off the sidelines. So I think from our conversation today, people can tell that you know what you're talking about when it comes to leadership, and they will undoubtedly see the value of the insight that you can provide in the Busy Leaders Handbook. But I also would like to hear, are there any other books that you've written that you think that leaders would find helpful in what they do? Yeah, there's a book called Great Employee Handbook. And I wrote, I, most of my books were for senior leadership type for a long time. And I wrote that book for employees because I think employees need to know how to handle a situation. So the book is things like, how do you, instead of running to your manager complaining about a coworker, how do you go to your coworker yourself? How do you learn to bring a solution instead of a problem? You know, when you hear gossip, what do you do? So that's called the Great Employee Handbook. And then probably another book that's very, is pretty popular is a book called Results That Last. I think that went to number eight on the bestseller list. And that's another book, Results at Last, the Great Employee Handbook, um, and the Busy Leader Handbook. And my first, and then of course we have Building the Vibrant Community is for Communities. Well, Quint, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for sharing your leadership insight with us, your vision. I think it's going to be inspirational to leaders to see what they can do when they are willing to invest in places and invest in people. Where can people go to learn more about your work and to find your new book, The Busy Leader's Handbook? Sure. My email is quint at quintstuter.com. And then they can go to Vibrant Community Blueprint. And if they're looking for some of our community work, they can also go to studeri.org. Um, Studer Community Institute is what that is. And that's basically talks about what early learning and some of the skill building we're doing for small business. But they just write me an email, quint at quintstuter.com. I'll make sure I get them to the right place. All right, Quint, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. All right, thank you, Josh.
If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to reach out to Quint and let him know that. It sounds like he would be more than happy to connect with you. Now, there are a few things that I thought were really valuable in this interview. The first is the idea of the importance of ego deflation. I liked what Quint said at the beginning, which is if you don't deflate your own ego, someone is going to do it for you. So go ahead and especially in your leadership role, be someone who is humble and who doesn't have an overinflated ego. The second thing is the idea that whoever has the best middle managers wins. So much of your success is about who is overseeing the day-to-day activities on the ground level, and the difference between success and failure may depend on the people who are the middle managers. The final thing is to choose values over everything else. Choose values over revenue, choose values over your own comfort, and base your decisions on your company's values. And if you find that your company values don't align with your own, maybe that's a signal that you should be finding a place where you are able to find alignment between where you're working and your own values. Like Quint said, once you lock someone into their values, they cannot not do something. And speaking of not not doing something, I encourage you, if you found today's episode valuable, to share it with someone that you think could benefit from this episode. We're going to be back on Friday with our second interview, so I will see you then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.